Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 199 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Hutton. Dr. Hutton is a pediatric physical therapist from Nashville, Tennessee. I was introduced to her through Jill Miller, who I've had on this podcast several times before. And I recently did a webinar with Dr. Hutton called Anti-Racism and Allyship for Rehab and Movement Professionals. And I thought it was such a helpful presentation that I asked her to be on the show to walk through her framework. And she kindly does that for us on this episode. A little bit more about her background. She really enjoys treating the developmentally delayed population as well as children with neurological and orthopedic diagnoses. And I can tell just from talking to her that she loves her work and she has a really special connection with kids. She says she loves to showcase her pop stars and share creative treatment ideas on Instagram. And if I didn't say this already, she's known as Dr. J-Pop with her kids. She's also an instructor for Rock Tape and is currently working on her own educational content for pediatric movement specialists. I know that you'll enjoy this interview, and I encourage you to share it with anyone who you think would benefit. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad that Jill introduced us. Yes, I'm excited. Well, how do you know Jill, actually? How did you two connect? It's funny. We took, I think it was the beginning of 2018, I went out to LA to take a postural, it was the respiration course from PRI. Yeah. And she was in the same course and we had a mutual friend. So we met through the course. Um, and then of course, social media, we just kept up with each other. Yeah. She is, she is. And the work she does, she's interesting because she's one of the few people who is still in the yoga space, but really has her own thing and has branched off and can kind of bridge over into, into your world as well. Like into, you know, just kind of combining different disciplines. It's really interesting to me. Yeah, which I love because I think that's the picture of wellness and healthcare right now. Everybody's kind of starting to um, learn the same things together and get on the same page with a lot of different research. So you see the the molding of all of the different professions together, which I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. So you're a pediatric OT. I mean, PT, I keep doing that. (laughs) Sorry. I mentioned my my daughter goes to OT and has for a while and it's great for her. Like she goes for sensory integration issues, which is why I keep going to OT. But but you're a PT, a pediatric PT, which is amazing. So can you tell me what inspired you to work with kids and what kind of work you do? Definitely. I my cousin, there's 14 cousins in my family and I'm the oldest. Yeah, it is the best. Yes, it is. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm the oldest. He is the youngest and he was born, my youngest cousin was born three months premature and around two years old, he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. So over those two years, I got to watch him go to OT and PT and speech and all of the different programs. And I also remember my the doctor telling my aunt, just get him a wheelchair. He's never going to walk. Huh. And he had never met anyone from my family because that, that doesn't fly with us telling us mm-hmm. what we cannot do. And so she worked 
so hard to give him everything that he needed from regular therapy to intensive therapies. And he's he'll turn 22 next month. He is a junior in college. He walks wherever he wants to go unless he's tired. And watching him go through that progress just said, I want to do that. I want to help children defy all odds because truly none of us know what the body is capable of. No matter how much science we learn, it's always going to be this much and we're always going to be learning more. So to be able to say, I'm going to get this child to their greatest, not the greatest that you think that they should be. That is what drives me. Oh, I love that so much. I was, I just, I love people who work with kids because I think that you're right. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but it, everything changes so quickly. And there was so much intolerance of childhood. Like when I was little, like when I think back on it and I look at my daughter and her challenges, people that we, we look at challenges as a sign, like we look for the root of the issue. We don't just look at the behavior, you know, and you really do have to believe that anything is possible. And kids are so responsive too. I mean, do you find like that they just grow so quickly? And they feel your energy. I was talking to a group of younger physical therapists that wanted to go into peds. And I, I told them, your energy is palpable for children. Mm-hmm. They know immediately what you feel about them, what you feel about your job, how you feel about the moment that you're in. And that's when you see the responses. So if you're having a bad day and you take that energy into a session, they know that. Mm-hmm. And they probably will respond with some type of behavioral is- issues or oppositional behavior and it's because they feel what's going on on top of what they're dealing with. Yeah. So kids are, they are a true barometer to me of how people are. Yeah. My daughter's OT, like I, my daughter's, one of her issues is distraction and it, it's just very, very challenging for her. And her OT has said to me on certain days, like, I'm sorry, I was distracted today. Did you notice how hard it was for her? And it, it's, it's like a hundred percent difference than when my her OT is feeling well. Her, her OT has like twin babies. So she's got like a lot on her plate. I mean, everybody, you know, we all kind of have a lot on our plate all the we time. Life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was actually really glad that she told me because I was sort of wondering in a session like happened. So yeah, I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it myself up close and personal. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then another big part of your career is working with rock tape. So I was <laughs> mentioning to you before we started that like I'm a very hypermobile type. And so I see the people with the tape. I see the people running with the tape. I see my husband using the tape and I never really explore the tape. So like, what is the purpose? And you know, <laughs> how is it helpful? I get it. Um, it's funny because a lot of people who say they're hypermobile or loosey-goosey, yeah. a lot of them trend to yoga. That is I know, I know. It was like sort of the first seen. thing I was really good at. Yeah. 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 So three things that we teach is it helps mitigate pain. It decompresses the area because of the elasticity in the tape. um, And then it gives a neurosensory input. Anything that touches the skin is going to send some type of stimulus up to the brain. And then the brain decides, okay, what needs to happen next? So for someone like you and I, who are hypermobile, loosey-goosey, sometimes have coordination issues probably and body awareness, it gives us that input that we need and amplifies the signal from that area of the body so that the body can say, oh, okay, there's something there and and we need to figure out what they need in order to go through these movements that they're going through. 
my daughter is really hypermobile and definitely struggles with like sensory input. I mean, can you use it with kids even if they're not quote unquote injured? Yes. You yeah. can. Actually, that's why they brought me on. They, the rock tape started a peds course in 2017. Um, and they had pretty much ortho and instructors who taught, who like treated kids, but it wasn't their specialty. So they were looking for someone to really specifically talk to that population. And they brought me on and I talk about a little bit of everything in mm. our peds taping course from hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos to cerebral palsy and toe walking. The neuro input is, is probably what you'll see peds therapists using it for the most. Oh my gosh. I have to find out more about this. So the way that I was introduced to you through Jill was through the web, a webinar that you did recently. And I should have looked up the name of the webinar so I could like say it again properly. But what, what was, was the... Anti-Racism and Allyship for the yes. Rehab and Movement Professional. Yes. I was really drawn to it, first of all, because I trust Jill so implicitly. And then also because I think a lot of yoga teachers are kind of multi-modality people like they teach yoga to adults and then they teach yoga to children in schools or they are a PT and a yoga teacher or a therapist and a yoga teacher. So I, I was actually drawn to getting a perspective outside of just the yoga community. That's the other thing is like, we're a very small insular community in some ways. Right. So I was interested in that. And as you know, like I just appreciated your presentation so much. You, you managed to cover so much in a short space and yeah, it was a it lot. Days. It took me days to figure out how to consolidate, first of all, the history portion, which we exactly. talked about. That, that took me about two days to, to just say, okay, I, I can only highlight. I can only highlight yeah. just to give them the picture because there was so much more that I wanted to add, but I was grateful that it came across. Um, it, in the it, little bit that I got to do. It really did. And I, I actually was going to ask you if you had based it on a speech or something you had done before because, wow, oh my gosh. The that I had learned, and I spoke about it in the webinar, in most schools, a lot of that history has been taken out. And you learn that there is there was slavery and then it was abolished and then there was civil rights and happy-go-lucky, no, we're all free. Yeah, exactly. Like we're all holding hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I grateful to my parents, I was able to do my own research on, on history. And I'll be honest, it took me years. I don't think I could do it in elementary school because any images I saw, any stories that I read, I felt them. Like they hurt to mm -hmm. see those images of hangings and killings and cross burnings. And to know that I lived in a state where it happened, it was just too real. Even though it was hundreds of years ago, it's like, these were still my people. These are still my ancestors. Mm -hmm. So once I got to an, an age where I could actually stomach it, then I really dove deep. And not just in mine, but in other histories too. History is like one of my favorite like, side things to do. Mm -hmm. So just over the years, all the things that I had heard, I knew what I wanted to put in there. It was just a man, man, uh, spark notes version <laughs> of yeah, what yeah, exactly. I had learned. <laughs> But there were even things I feel like, I don't know, you started, which I think is just so apropos of this conversation, you started by talking about the history of Black people in our healthcare system, right? And healthcare during slavery. So I wonder if you could just mm -hmm. speak about that a little bit. 
Oh, yeah. So my biggest point was for people to see that as a slave, you had no autonomy. So when you were sick, it was the slave master's role to determine whether you would get care and what kind of care you would get. And so there were a lot of, and that we were in, slaves are an investment. Right. Like you are, like they're commodities. It was like an item, like who was, that was making the slave master money. So they had to probably determine what would happen that day if this person wasn't working. The loss of productivity if, if someone strong got sick. So that of course determined how they treated it because if they needed them to get right back to work, then they were going to make sure that they had the best care. But if they weren't, then some of the slave masters actually would treat the patients or the slaves themselves. And if there was maybe an outbreak, sort of like what we're dealing with now, they would have slave quarters and hospitals and doctors and nurses could work with them if they wanted to. They could refuse. They could work with them. But if they did, they could not treat white people. If you treated slaves, you only treated slaves. And that was pretty much it because there's no mixing of the two. So I wonder so if it then was you, hard to find doctors who would treat the slave. Yeah. yeah. So you did have, I guess you had healers that were, that came from Africa, that that was their thing back home. So they had to learn the new herbs and the new plants and, and the nature around them and how they could use it. Because sometimes they did have to take care of themselves and their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they were trusted by their masters, then they would actually treat their slave masters as well. But then there were a lot of uprisings where slaves would actually poison their owners. And so they abolished it. So you couldn't, not only could you not treat your master, you also couldn't be a healer on -hmm. the plantation. That didn't stop them Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they still would do it. They had access to, they were in the, in nature, they had access to everything. But it it did say there's penalty of death if you actually went against this law. Hmm. So you've got that aspect. You've got the research aspect because just as we were building the country, we were building the medical system as well and practices and and what's the best practice for for certain like tuberculosis and all of the diseases diseases they were seeing. And so they would use slaves in their research and they would use them without anesthesia. They would try different medications on them. They would use their bodies once they passed, which was huge religiously because a lot of their beliefs, their spiritual beliefs um, back home in Africa were, it's sacred. After we, we die, we actually have to be whole. We have to be intact because it is a spiritual death. So it was an attack on their beliefs then because not only were you a slave in life, you were a slave in death as well. So you had no autonomy. And I really wanted to hone in on that because we kind of have someone in in the insurance company, if you look at how the insurance company is set up, who still tells us what best practices are, what we will pay for. And, And so you kind of have to look at how that setup was then and how it looks now. So that part was really important for me to get through so they could Mm. see the beginnings of this is what we thought about about Black people, that we were biologically inferior. They believe we were built for labor. Some of the actual remedies were 
okay, go whip them and then put them back out in the sun for hard work. And that will actually cure some of these false diagnoses that they made up to mm-hmm. tailor fit their belief system. So it's, it's so layered. It's so layered. And it's why I believe whitewashing it and just making it seem really small, it doesn't allow you to see the root. It doesn't allow you to see why we still have mistrust in the healthcare system today. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just so much to say that I sometimes like I'm at a loss for words. It's so it's like so sickening to hear that. Um, so as you were talking, I just had this, I wonder if women, I wonder if slaves who were pregnant hid their pregnancies because I'm sure they must have been mistreated if they were not able to so work. This was not only that they didn't allow them to go to hospitals. So that is actually where the birth of the midwife came into oh, play. I, gosh, how did I not know that? Wow. And it's actually a, a contentious spot in the midwife community now because it's not recognized as the beginning, but we weren't allowed to go to hospitals to birth our own children. We had to birth them in the slave barracks or in the homes if they were allowed and depending on how, how their um, slave owners valued them. So that is actually the birthplace of midwifery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so hard for me to believe that people, and I'm actually not religious. Like I don't, I would say I'm sort of agnostic, maybe even closer to atheists, but (laughs) it's hard for me to believe that people who consider themselves to be, and maybe still like to be like moral people and like children of God, that they would think that any other being is inferior to them. It's just like such a foundation of humanity to me to just, we're all different. We are all different, right? So why are we parsing? <laughs> like, you know, like, a lot of these religions to me, the ego is the center and really not the belief system. Then you see desire for power take over. And then when I want power, I'm going to make my religion fit what works for me, um, oh. which leaves out you being able to be convicted that you could be wrong. What you're reading and how you're interpreting it could actually be wrong if it doesn't fit with what you believe right now. So religion is a whole nother layer when it comes to, because there's a lot of people who are coming out now who said, I was taught that blacks and whites were not supposed to mix, that God actually did not want it that way. And there are no verses in the Bible that they can show to support it, but it supports the belief from the 1800s, the 1700s, that is what they taught. They taught that the races were not supposed to mix. So it, ugh, religion, mm-hmm. it's layered too. Yeah, yeah white yeah. supremacy, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just appreciate that you brought the healthcare conversation to light because I think that one of the problems, and like I freely admit that I'm like part of the problem of white privilege is if you don't think about those details, it's so easy to be, it's so much easier to just say like, well, I'm a good person and I think we're equal. And like every, you know, that's the right thing and you're protected under the law. But what thinking about this history brings up is just this concept of bias being passed along and passed along. And it becomes sort sort of invisible if you're privileged, right? But if you're not, it's not invisible at all. It's a lived yeah. experience. And you actually told the story on the call of 
I hope it's okay that I'm bringing it up, but like of you going in and trying to treat a person who basically, he was like an older man <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 you're not allowed to treat me. Yeah. It was um, my last affiliation in PT school um, at a skilled nursing facility. And I went to bring him in for treatment and we knew that he said wild things, but it was that day he said, you can't treat me. And I was like, why? What's the problem? You don't want therapy? He said, no, you're not allowed to because you're black and blacks can't do therapy on white people. And I didn't, historically, he was correct Hmm. from his era. Oh, oh, oh. From what he grew up in, he was correct. I mean, he had dementia. He had stuff going on in his mindset. Yes, you are right. If we were living back then, I could not treat you because there could be no touching of the two races at all. But it also, it made me think to him, there was nothing wrong with that statement because it actually was against the law during the Jim Crow era. But it made me think these thought viruses have been passed down. And it's part of the reason why I don't take it too personally when people don't see it in themselves. And, I, and it's because of what you said. This has been passed down to you. The condition of the thought has been passed down. So I'm not attacking you and you're truly not attacking me. I'm trying to get to that thought virus and show you what's wrong with that thought process so that you can be enlightened to see a new way. Mm, that's actually a really good point. It's a, I mean, yeah, like we're all products of our conditioning and our environment. And it can be so hard. And I think for people, it can be so threatening to think that like everything you were taught, you know, that there could be holes in that, right? Because I was talking to my friend, Faith Hunter, she's on the previous podcast and, and she was like, and then there's white guilt, you know, and I can't even unpack that. And I'm like, I can't even unpack that yet. Like I, I haven't even really looked at that and I know I have it. And, but how does that inform? I think like the, maybe the essence of it is to look at how it informs your behavior. How does it inform the decisions that you make, yeah. the snap judgments that you make and how you conduct yourself at work and your hiring policies. And you're right. We're, we're a product of our environment and we just have to look at that with as much, with as little guilt as possible and shame as possible mm-hmm. so that we can just figure out a it's way factual. to change it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So it sounds like that specific incident wasn't horrible for you because you just felt at that point you knew yourself you, and I, I was probably mid-20s I had had enough experiences that shaped me that were painful that got me to the point where I could spot it get to the root and say we're in a different day today I'm going to be doing therapy and you're going to be okay with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because I have to do my job so yeah. but there were enough experiences that were traumatic prior to it that allowed me to start seeing it differently so that it didn't completely throw me off in terms of being able to function and actually do what I needed to do. Yeah. You are in an embodied profession. Like how, what are some of your tools that you learned or that you maybe still call upon if you're feeling trauma? Within where my profession, I would say it is still difficult at different stages. In the clinic, I have a whole different mode and a whole different mindset. And I have definitely encountered parents that I know 
were not thrilled when I came to pick up their child. Mm -hmm. But I adopted the mantra of, oh, you're going to love me by the end of this session, though. Don't worry. And it would get there. It may take one or two sessions. But at some point, you're going to be like, this child, she's here for my child. She's here for my grandchild. She gives, she, she has passion for it. And so she's going to give everything that she has. And we were fine. But in the professional space in terms of education, it's still difficult because when I, I, I think I talked about this um, on the webinar, when I go to teach a course and the people actually address my coordinator who's white instead of me as the instructor and just assume, even though I'm the one wearing all the red and black <laughs> that I'm not the one who is actually teaching or the people from the venue are asking questions to the coordinator that still does kind of grind my gears. Cause mm-hmm. it's like the problem is it's obvious. I am wearing everything. I am in front. I am setting up. I'm doing all of this. And it's either the thought that they're in charge or it's a team effort because I couldn't be doing this all by myself. That is when I struggle because it's in your face. It is the evidence is in your face. Or when I see different panels and, and masterminds and conferences and our professional organizations where the only time the Black people are asked to speak is when it comes to these topics. Mm. And it's like, I've been a pediatric therapist for 12 years. I have a lot to share. I have a lot that I want to give, but you only value me for my color. And while people say, oh, you can benefit from tokenism, yeah, it gets you in the door, but that's literally all that they lo- they're looking at you as. That bugs me because mm. I am a professional. I want you to talk to me about what I got a degree in and what I've been working towards. So in the clinic space, I have my way. In the professional space, I've definitely just started speaking louder and actually pointing it out when I see it. So that they're aware and not in a, in a angry way. It's just, no, I need you to be aware of this. So if I continue to state it in these different spaces, maybe it'll click. Maybe that seed will be sown and you'll actually start to see some of the implicit biases you have right. so that we can actually make some changes. Right. I mean, it's interesting. Like, obviously the education example is like appalling to me, but I, I'm impressed that you're as patient as you are with the parents. That would frustrate me to no end. Like, but we have to, yeah, this is important. Like we have to he- hear these stories to have any idea that it's even going on. And I think you meet a lot of, especially during this fresh time, because we're still in the thick of it. I think you may meet anger. You, oh, when yeah. you do try to talk to people, you, especially ones you don't know. You might meet that opposition. And it's because we've been saying that message for years. We've been telling the stories and it's been brushed off with microaggressions or it couldn't be about that or we'll look into it. And so you're like, I've been saying this for the last 30 something years and Mm -hmm. I'm glad everybody's hearing it now, but we're tired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've been saying it and now you see it. It's like, okay. I know you're ready to get to work, but I need to breathe for a minute. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, also kind of like, it's not your job to take care of my feelings now. It's not your job to explain everything to me now. I appreciate that you're here. But I think that's, it's it's good though. You know, it's like you, you mentioned, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but you, you did mention that, that check on your black friends, but don't be surprised if there are moments where they're just like, I don't really want to talk to you right now. I don't want to talk about it right now. And that's when, to me, it's important to take that 10,000 foot view of it's not actually me. <laughs> it's the, it's what I symbolize. 
Mm-hmm. So when you, when I said like, sometimes we don't want to hear from our white friends, it's not because you are not a beautiful soul. It's because what you represent for me is actually triggering. Mm-hmm. And so I know that you care and I'm grateful that you care, but I actually, I think I said you heal best in absence of your oppressor. Mm. So I actually want to be with my people. I want to lament. I want to vent. I want to talk to them. And I want to talk to people that truly understand. Because once I get through that, then I can come back and we can have an effective conversation mm. about what the next step should be. Yeah. Yeah. When you said that on the call, I, I was reminded of way back, I did a podcast with a woman who wrote a book about grief and she'd gone through like really intense life grief. And Mm -hmm. I remember saying to her, I can be socially awkward. And I was like, what do I say to someone who's like in the midst of grief? Like, just make it really clear to me. I said, I don't ever want people to feel like I'm pitying them. It's to me, that is just the worst. She said, you just say, I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, but what if you say that and they don't want to hear it? And she Mm -hmm. said, grievers are mercurial. They're going through grief. And like this whole thing, I've just been thinking so much about how I think a lot of people are grieving now, but especially the black community, right? Like there's like this level of massive, massive grief. And so to just understand that and to like hold the community in that space, we get that at least, you know, like we haven't had the same embodied experience, but like we can hold you in the space of grief right now. And like, you, when you're in the middle of grief, you kind of get to do whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, I went through cancer and it's like, I'm like, I have the cancer card. I get to like act however I want through that. I get to call whoever I want or not call whoever I want. I get to explain things or not explain things. Like times when you are the person who needs to be held. And so it's funny that you said that because I think it might've been two last week when everything happened, I actually likened what we're going through and described the five stages of grief and the fact that it's cyclical grief for us when we go through these private tragedies and we see it publicly played out over and over and over again, you're just cycling through those stages. And the only difference is once you get to acceptance, you get to decide, am I just going to accept that this is my lot in this country? Or I'm going to say, nah, I'm good. (laughs) I'm going to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. And most people say, no, this is unacceptable. I have to keep going. But it doesn't change the fact that at some point they're going to go back through those five stages. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Grief is like you go through the stages linearly and then you circle back. You know, it's like it's not just linear. Yeah. 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 Let's get to your, you presented this like really helpful framework for allyship. And I know that that's such a, so on the minds of so many yoga teachers and studio owners of just like, what can I do and how can I help? And I think one of the first things that you talked about was that this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is time to invest your energy and your time. And I actually found that helpful because instead of feeling oh, if I don't do enough now, I'm not doing enough. It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm committed to doing this. You know, I I still have a business to run. I still have kids to take care of. I still have a life, but this is going to keep happening. Like it's going to keep humming along for me and I'm going to keep helping in the ways that I can. That's how I- No, that was it. That was was definitely it because I, I see that there are genuine people. I see that their intention is genuine, but we're also in a trendy, manic, um, yeah. culture. 
<laughs> Whereas like, go. We're like, oh, guess what, guys? This is a marathon. You can't go out with a sprint because you're gonna burn out at some point, especially when you don't genuinely feel it. Yeah. So if you're really just acting off of what everybody else is doing and the vibe and the energy that you're feeling outside of yourself, then you'll never have an internal guide. And so that's why I wanted people to slow down and just say, hey, I need you to see where you are in the stages. And I really need you to chill in that stage and be okay with that. And there will be people shaming you. And you will see posts that probably trigger you at trying to go through those stages um, to become an ally. But you have to decide, is this important to me? If it is, then keep going on your own path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. You did talk about that, that you are in the stage you're in and that's okay. Like as long as you know that you... Stones for me with kids. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not rushing them through because I want the foundation. And if you rush yourself through, that's where it does become performative. That's where it's like, well, look what I did. And like, I'm supporting and I'm doing Okay. So the first stage that you talked yeah. about was the awakening and awareness the stage. Awake. Yeah. yeah. So that was the, the first stage. It's where you actually see it. You're, the scales have fallen away. Your eyes are open and you acknowledge, okay, I have played a part in it at some point. And you definitely have to put your ego aside to mm-hmm. me on this journey. It's funny. There was a quote from a, actually a teacher that was teaching one of my yoga courses that I kept and wrote down. And she said, let go of your ego, start from where you truly are so that the growth is real. And this was about a pose, but I was like, that is life. You just preached a whole word mm-hmm. in that sentence. But the action steps in your awareness phase is to just commit to being aware everywhere, not just in the justice system, not just in your home, but in all of the spaces that you exist in. Find someone to be accountable to, because I think that's extremely helpful. And then just commit to learning, unlearning, learning, unlearning, learning, unlearning, and coming back to that awakening area, that phase a couple times, because you'll see it, you'll start to see it in different sectors, and you'll be going back through that whole phase again. Yeah. Learning and then unlearning, basically what we were saying before, like unlearning the conditioning, unlearning the the context in which, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then I think the second phase was education. Yep. Which is what everybody's in now. Yep. Everybody's in education. And that was really where I said, don't, do not try to kill yourself and learn everything in a week. Listen to all the TED Talks, read all of the books. Don't even order all of the books because even to me, having six books stacked up in my room... (laughs) Stresses you. <laughs> I didn't order all the books yet because of, for that very reason, I'm reading all these like neuro kid books. So I'm like, I gotta, and, and I, it's so funny that you say that. Cause I just, I've seen all the book lists and some of the books I've actually read, but like a lot of them I have. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, I'm so ADD. It's going to make me feel crazy if I do that. Yeah. So, and that's why I said, create a curriculum. So just de- right. decide what book am I going to read this month? What Ted talks do I want to watch? What, document series do I want to see podcasts do I want to listen to and then say on Mondays I'll do this on Wednesdays I'll do this on Fridays Mm -hmm. I'll do this and then just chunk off as much as you can because the most important part is actually processing what you're learning and I kept seeing oh I went to this and I saw this and I went to this and I was like okay but did you process what you heard Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people who've come through my webinar and said it took me three days because I actually had to digest mm-hmm. each part. And I appreciated that. I don't mm-hmm. want you to rush through it. But create a curriculum that that makes you 
feel as comfortable as possible in an uncomfortable journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and also just, I'm thinking about like multi-sensory learning with kids, right? Do the learning that there's so many different mediums that you can mm-hmm. learn in. So right now podcasting is the easiest because I can like listen on my walks and I'm alone and I can absorb and I can listen in the car. And so if that's that for you, then you do that. And if reading for you, then you do that. And that is kind of, we're lucky that we have all those possibilities available. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The next stage, the self-interrogation assessment phase, I think is going to resonate so much with, with yogis because we have this whole idea of self-study in yoga and discernment, right? You can take it as self-study in terms of your habits and your constitution and all of those things, but you can also take it as your conditioning, your reactions to things, your responses to things, (laughs) your behavior in the world observing yourself from a non-judgmental place and more objective Mm -hmm. place than you do in your kind of everyday day-to-day life. So that was that I was just like, this is so interesting. And I, and so anyway, I'd love to hear you talk about your perspective on that. Yeah. I always say education is probably the easiest phase because you're just learning self-interrogation and examining. That is probably the hardest because I encourage you to ask yourself the hard questions. And I think a couple of the ones that I said were, what were you taught about Black people and people of color when you were growing up? Can you recall times that you actually could spot racism? And what was your physiological response to it? Did you want to speak up? Did you actually agree with what was being said so you felt like it was okay? What does your circle look like? Okay, do you, do you have friends of color in your private circle, in your professional circle, and implicit bias versus racism. What was actually taught in the home? Because maybe in your home, you weren't taught that Black people are more inferior, but maybe you were taught that they tend to be lower in economic status. They live in certain parts of town. Mm. These are stems of white supremacy and racism. So it's hard for people to identify with racism, but they always can identify with implicit bias. Because especially the older generation, how can you not see for coloreds only, for whites only, everywhere you go and not have a thought about it? Like How not can think you not different formed of a the essence? That's yeah. just not possible. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere. It was preached in homes. It was preached on TV. It was everywhere that it was separate but equal. So you you have to be able to recognize those small things that seem small then, but actually have conditioned you and how you think and how you communicate and what you think about people. And then just continuing to ask yourself those hard questions, which are going to be different depending on the spaces that you're in. And then are you holding other people accountable as you're learning these things? The people that you care about. I'm not saying go in the comments sections of some of these posts. (laughs) No, people who you could actually have any like effect on their internal landscape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I think I was saying there are some comments we just literally leave, like even we leave alone because yeah. you can tell when it's a brick wall and when it's a sponge that's actually willing. So that's when you have to kind of decipher who's ready for that. Yeah. So those were the personal questions. Um, and then I moved into professional looking at yourself as the clinician, as the instructor, as the educator, 
What are your beliefs in those spaces? Have you been using your white privilege to actually further someone else's platform or actually open the door for other people to actually have an opportunity in your spaces? What are your soft skills? Can you pick up on nonverbal communication, discomfort of your members, your patients, your students, um, your coworkers, staff? Mm-hmm. And, and can you pick up when something is triggering to mm-hmm. someone? One of the big things for self-interrogation for professional in our space, there are even certain insurances that there's a stigma around, mm-hmm. around it. So if you hear someone say, oh, I have a working comp patient or oh, I have a Medicare patient. Do you go in there thinking that? Because if you do, you better believe it's going to affect how you examine this person and how you plan out your plan of care. I really don't care what anybody says. There Mm -hmm. is science on this. So you have a negative bias in your head already. It affects how passionate you are about helping people. So that's why I really wanted people to to get into that Mm self-interrogation portion. Yeah. No, that's so true. One of the things that comes up a lot, I think, is yoga studio owners just wanting to create, like, quote unquote, a more inclusive space. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, having worked in a, you know, you work in more clinic space. It's very, very similar, though. And obviously, like, you're identifying your hiring practices, right, I think would be Mm -hmm. a great place to start. But aside from, from that, what are more subtle ways that you think we could start to interrogate this and think about it? So examining your setting. Oh, that's um, right. That's the next one. I kind of pulled it out of the self-awareness and those questions that you are asking, but looking at your staff diversity, your classroom diversity, those who actually sign up for maybe you have the promotional sessions and then maybe they don't come back. And I usually suggest sending out a survey that says, okay, what was the reasoning? Cause sometimes it's just, I don't have the money right now. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's, I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel like it was a space that was meant for me. And then beliefs and practices. I know I spoke to a couple yoga instructors that were talking about the, the manifestation beliefs and how they talk about manifesting your dreams and making sure that you 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 put it out there. And it's like, well, yeah, but is it really manifestation or did your white privilege get you through the door? Because there's a difference between the two. And I know you won't see it if you are white, but we can see the difference in how we are treated in these spaces. And I think one of the things I suggested in the action was don't just go get Black people. <laughs> don't just go get people of color. Actually go into their spaces. Because sometimes that can help you understand what it feels like to be a minority in a space. You will see how they relate to each other. And that's not every, every studio is not the same. But I've literally only had one Black yoga instructor. And I told you I've been off and on in yoga mm-hmm. for probably like 10 years and gone to about three different studios. Mm-hmm. And I've only had one. Wow. And so going into those spaces and inviting those instructors into your space, maybe you have a day where you say, hey, we really would love to have a guest instructor from your, come on over, invite your people, we'll all all come together. And that makes it more authentic because you're really working on the connection piece, yeah. not just trying to, not the, what I said, the performance allyship of making it look like you accept them, yeah. but you really don't know how to relate to them. Right. 
There's one more thing that you mentioned that I just thought was so interesting, uh, which is, well, you just brought up scholarships and that you don't have to assume that Black people need a handout. And I just thought that was so, so interesting because I think that that might be something that in the yoga space people think about doing, right? And I think it obviously like not everybody's going to agree on the, on this one issue, but I'm just wondering right. if you can talk about what your thought is and, and feeling about it. I don't think scholarships are bad. I think what you need to do is identify your community before you assume that a scholarship is the answer. If your setting is in maybe an urban, more rural area where there are people who would need one in order to, to, to see the benefit then yeah, okay, mm-hmm. you've taken stock of your community. You know that actually is a need. But to immediately go to, we should just have scholarships and only have them for Black people. It's like, well, maybe you're in, I was talking to somebody in Chelsea, New York. If they live in Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> They're fine. <laughs> I mean, I know it's expensive, but like, yeah. let's yeah. just look at our community and see what's needed. Um, Another thing to me for meditation, for yoga, I talked about racial trauma. And the fact that we need coping mechanisms, I think if they if there were a lot of instructors that would actually study up on that, then they could actually understand, oh, man, this could actually benefit you from a health perspective, having an outlet, because Mm -hmm. just like there's a stigma or there's implicit bias towards black people, there's thoughts of us towards different forms of exercise. There's not going to be many people in the Pilates space. There's not going to be too many Black people in the yoga space. But you're starting to see us uh, take those things and adapt it for ourselves. So we have Black studios. We have it just where it's people of color who own it. So now it's like, well, can we at least work together and connect together and show the community that this is something that's beneficial for them? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, I think we got through all the stages. The action, I think the last one was action. Oh yeah. Just taking action. Yeah. I talked about short-term action versus long-term short-term actions. What can you do now based on the needs? So we're, we're really fighting in the justice system. So I talked about, okay, do you want to protest? If that's your space, go ahead. Do you want to write letters? Do you want to write petitions? Do you want to go to your town hall meetings? Those are ways that you can act now, looking at who's on the different platforms for your state, local government. Who are you voting for? What do they stand for? What, what are the, what's their history when it comes to proposing different things? So you really know who you're putting in these positions. And then long-term action is just knowing you're in it for the long haul. So how can I be an ally in all of the spaces that I'm in? And I think that's when it goes back to that education and self-interrogation, because then you'll be able to authentically say, this is where I want to put this passion and I'll put my energy there so that you know that you're going to be in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's why it's like figuring out where you either, well, both maybe like the confluence of both, like where you can have the most impact and where you feel like most com- confident and authentic. Like I realize. I'm probably not going to go to all the protests having a small child and with COVID and everything, but like, I'm going to write about it as much as I can in our newsletter to all of our people. And I'm going to highlight it on the podcast or in my social media feed as much as I can. And it's funny because that's how I've always felt like I had any influence on the world anyway. So it's like, it makes sense that that's where I feel comfortable. So kind of figure out what their lane is and go deep into that. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. All right. 
Well, thank you so, so much. This is incredibly helpful. And I'm so happy to meet you. And yeah, I just really, really appreciate your time. And I, I saw on your social media that you, your webinar raised money, right? You had like 600 people. It's amazing. $10,000 we were able to donate to the National Association of Black Physical Therapists. And it was funny because in my head, I was like, oh, 50 people will show up. I'll be able to donate like 1K. I love it. And they thought the same thing. And so when I sent them the message, I said, guys, this is how much we're at. And they, I mean, everybody was speechless. So that, that was amazing for me to be able to give. And I wanted to do it to give. Like I wanted to help, but I also wanted to say, well, everybody's looking for places to put their money. This is something that's important to me. The people who have started this organization really are looking to have more in, mm-hmm. in this space, have more people in this space. So that was really awesome. So exciting. So amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. Like the things that you can do now that you, like you said, you had no idea who would, how many people would show up and there you were with 600 people. It's awesome. It's awesome. Call, call you everybody now, the church of allies. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll be getting in touch with you about my daughter and her rock tape. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. You can find show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 199. I hope you will share this episode and utilize the information and ideas and continue to educate yourself. As she said, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we all need to work on it together, myself included. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.